Hello, welcome. My name is Simon Stokes. I'm the RUF campus minister at UNC. And it's so good to be with you all today. It's been such a privilege for my wife, Katie, and I to get to settle into the Good Shepherd community and to move here to Durham um, from St. Louis. We've loved it, and we've loved being a part of the Research Triangle. We love being a part of students' lives. Um, I want to say a special thank you, not only for the support you give us in the ministry, but also especially for the food that you all donated to our recent food drive for Table. We collected over 250 pounds of food to feed hungry children in Chapel Hill and Carborough, and we couldn't have done that without y'all. So thank you for loving my students, thank you for loving me and my wife, and thank you especially for loving the kids in uh, Chapel Hill and Carborough who wouldn't have anything to eat on the weekends if it weren't for things like Table Food Drives. So let's get started. I was recently watching on Netflix a National Geographic documentary called Inside North Korea, and the documentary focuses on an American doctor who goes to North Korea and his goal is to do a thousand cataract surgeries in 10 days. A hundred surgeries a day, a thousand surgeries total, just busting himself to do this and make it happen. So he gets there and he does all these surgeries and he's just killing himself, cranking it out. And he gets at the end of the documentary and he has all the people that he's done these surgeries on in this one big room. Big double doors in the back, all these people in the center and at the front... There's this kind of step up, and then almost like an altar, there's a picture of Kim Jong-il and his father, who are the dictators of North Korea, kind of sitting up there, looking out over this crowd of people. And as the doctor removes the bandages from people's eyes, and they can see some of them for the first time in decades, the first thing they do is they brush past the doctor, run up to the front of that room, to the picture of Kim Jong-il and his father and say, thank you, great general. Thank you, great general, for giving me my sight back. And one of the most poignant parts of the whole thing was a young woman who hadn't seen since she was five or six years old. They take off the gauze from her eyes. She runs up to the front. She says, thank you, great general. Thank you, great general. Now I can work harder for you in the salt mines to get you more salt so that you'll be happier with me. And y'all, that is such a picture of the idolatry that we want to deliver people from, and we want to free people from. But if we're not careful, we can treat the true and living God as if he were a dictator instead of a doctor. The real question that's central for the work of the church is this. What is God like when you actually know him? What is God like when you actually know him? Is he trying to make us stronger, more independent, more able to handle things on our own? And certainly there's a component to growing to maturity where we become progressively holier or wiser. But what does holiness look like? And how does wisdom act? And what's really at stake here is who, who is shaping that holiness and wisdom? Is it man or is it God? Because it will be one or it will be the other. You cannot have both. And one will make you feel like you're working in the salt mines and the other will set you free. So before we begin, let's define some terms. One of my seminary professors defined wisdom like this, that wisdom is the art of godly living. Wisdom is the art of godly living. And the ultimate example of godly living is Jesus. Kind of a Sunday school answer there for you. He's Jesus. He is God's wisdom made flesh and blood in history. And the history on the page is that when God became a man... He died and he rose again from the dead, not only to love us and make us able to love, but to show us the art of love. 
And as Christians, that is the wisdom we're called to attend to. And what's amazing about what Paul is going to talk about today is that when God showed his wisdom and when he showed his power, that he showed it in absolute weakness. That Jesus, naked and nailed to a piece of wood, bleeding, surrounded by his enemies, struggling to breathe, crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? is stronger and wiser than the best that human civilization can put forward. Here in 1 Corinthians, Paul is speaking to the church in Corinth, one of the wealthiest, most cultured cities in the Roman Empire. Many of these people are super well-educated. Many of them are tied to business, to government, to the arts. Think of like a really diverse church in Los Angeles. Yet for all of their achievements, these people are dysfunctional, divided Christians. They're trying to figure out who is smarter, who is more religious, who is more hardworking, who's really in charge. And that means that on some level, Paul is speaking to all of us. He's speaking to something that all of us struggle with every day. And here he's contrasting the best of the wisdom that the worlds of religion and philosophy have to offer. And he's saying that on the cross, God has shown us what true wisdom and power is. So this morning we're going to talk about three things. We're going to talk about what is worldly wisdom... What is the wisdom of the cross? And how do we get true wisdom? What is worldly wisdom? What is the wisdom of the cross? And how do we get true wisdom? So let's read 1 Corinthians 1, 18-31, if you would. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise... And the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let me pray for us and we'll begin. Father, you know my heart, and you know that I'm a foolish man, and you know that I have very little power to save myself, to save anyone here. Lord, you know that as we sit here and we listen, that we, too, are foolish people, that we on our own have uh, no goodness, no power to save ourselves. And yet, Lord, you have done the work for us, and you have made yourself weak, and you have suffered on a cross so that sinners like us could draw near to you, and so that we would know both wisdom and power, and we would know it in the crucified Lord. God, I pray that you'd be with us this morning in your power and your presence, and that you would magnify your cross, and help us to trust you and to know you as the one true and living God. In your son's name I pray. 
Amen. So let's start off, let's look at verse 20 here. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? What is worldly wisdom? What's worldly wisdom? We will be more efficient. We will get more done. The people in charge will be more educated than the guys down the street. I serve other people, but I don't need other people to serve me. Worldly wisdom is more about your doing and your knowing than it is about God's doing and His loving. And you know who I think this would be hard for? Because it's hard for me. What if you grew up in a household where there was this kind of unspoken rule that said, hard work is how we're going to be okay. We don't make mistakes. And nobody ever said that to you. There wasn't like a placard over the door that had that written out. But it was there. And you could feel it deep down in your bones. That hard work is how we're going to be okay. We don't make mistakes. And you can never, like in social situations, really get that joke off. You never knew exactly what was the good thing to wear or what wasn't. Or you couldn't really, like, wasn't as easy to fit in. But man, when it came to work, or when it came to school, like, you were reliable. And you crushed it. And people knew that when they handed you a task or responsibility, you could get it done. And man, that felt good. And you really drank deeply of that unspoken rule. Hard work is how we're going to be okay. We don't make mistakes. And then you come to a great church like Good Shepherd, and you hear things like, you don't have to work to get into this family. And God loves you apart from your work. And you like that because some part of you had always needed to hear that. But at the same time, to come in here and hear God's message of grace... And have that kind of come against that long, unspoken rule that hard work is how we're going to be okay and we don't make mistakes. Man, that feels like tension to me. I feel that. Do you? I think it would be hard for us who've grown up like that to wrestle with this sort of worldly wisdom. Look at verse 22 here. That Jews want signs, Greeks seek wisdom. When it comes to wisdom, the real question is, is whose wisdom? Will it be wisdom that's dependent upon man and his work, or wisdom that depends on God and his work? Because the Bible is very clear that true wisdom comes from God. Psalm 111 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And in Paul's mind, what do Greeks and Jews have in common? What do the most intelligent people and the most religious people have in common? The need to be in control. They need the power to say, this is how it's done. And that might mean, how many times a day do I need to pray? Or that might mean, we will only trust God when we can understand all of his reasons for why I lost my job and why I'm still not married. And religious people will say, we will control our religious standing. I will go on the mission trip that I planned. I will pray my prayers. I will read whatever I need to read. But just let me know, what do I need to do to cover my bases here? Worldly power says, worldly wisdom says, that we will control our schedule, our accomplishments. We will know exactly how everything works. And both live in effect as though there is no God to show how true wisdom and true power are to be used. And so they will be their own God. Religion based on man's wisdom wants to see that you've got religious results. You know, if we're doing this right, then we're going to have hundreds of people just sort of streaming in. Maybe. Maybe not. 
You know, when I read the Bible, I don't get the sense that God is a numbers guy. Somebody who gathers to himself 12 disciples, one of which he knew would betray him, doesn't come off to me as a numbers guy. Or the guy who told the parable of the good shepherd, who leaves the 99 sheep in order to go find that one ridiculous, inefficient sheep out there, doesn't seem to me like he's driven by progress reports and efficiency. God cares about more than people's efficiency. He cares more about more than numbers. Because true wisdom's measure can't be based on external results. As we've talked about for the last year, true wisdom, true godliness, is based on the heart. Numbers can be a sign that you're doing something right. Sure. Being organized is a great way to grow an organization. But to be driven by numbers, to be driven by our ability to organize, is a recipe for spiritual death because it looks more at what you're doing and how you're doing it than at who God is and who he cares about and how he works in the world. So if that's worldly wisdom, what is the wisdom of the cross? If that's worldly wisdom, what's the cross's wisdom? Look at verses 18 here. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of the cross is the power of God. You know, I grew up in South Alabama, basically in a town where they had drained a swamp and put a bunch of buildings there. And growing up in that kind of climate, hot, humidity, swampy land, um, we had honey land near this town. And back in the day, we got a bunch of beavers on this honey land. And if you don't know anything about beavers, what they do when they come into the land is they build a bunch of dams, they block all the water up, and then it just kind of stagnates. And no clean water can get through, animals leave. I mean, it just becomes like this gross, nasty, smelly swamp. And growing up in pre-9-11 Alabama, we could get dynamite with just no prior convictions and a driver's license. And that was a sweet deal for a 12-year-old kid. Because me and my dad one time, we went out to these beaver dams and we just took a post hole digger and just dug down into the dams dropped four or five sticks of dynamite in there because we didn't know what we were doing. <laughs> Put uh, the fuse on there, went back about 500 yards, lit it, and waited for about five minutes. And at the end of five minutes, you'd hear, boom! And that dam would go way up into the air. And then a few seconds later, you get this fine mist of wood and water and mud and probably a little bit of beaver come down on you. <laughs> and it was glorious. And not only what was so glorious about it was the power of that dynamite, the explosion that came with that, but was also that at the end of the day, that stagnant, sick water left and new, clean water, new life could flow into these places where there'd been just decay and rot. You know, if worldly wisdom and worldly actions creates a stunted, stagnant faith, then Jesus and the power of the cross explodes those things to give us a living, vibrant, winsome faith. How, though? What is that wisdom? You know, one of the things that makes the Bible such a true book is that it doesn't flinch from the tragedy of life. If anything, the Bible is really brutally honest about how messed up the world is. And one of the, most things, the things that it's most honest about is that when God came and visited his people, he was rejected. And it wasn't because he didn't prove himself. His whole life was a proof of who he was. In the quality of his life, he was blameless. He could publicly demand, if anyone has ever seen me sin, speak up. Like, raise your hand. Say something. Silence. 
No one taught like he taught. No one said the things he said. Memorable sayings, parables just fell off his lips. He could interpret scripture, make connections that no one else had ever made. And he has no teacher. No one could look at him and say, you know, you learned this from so-and-so. Jesus is a disciple of no one. The miracles that he does, walking on water, power over evil spirits, making blind people to see, deaf people to hear, the power that he has makes the world a little bit more like the place that it should be. And it's all for others. None of his miracles are for himself. People were aware of the claims that he was making, of the power, the wisdom that was meant to back up those claims. It's not like his ministry was done in a corner But they still rejected him because his wisdom didn't look like how people expected it to look. They wanted a king, they got a king, but he's a servant king. And ultimately, he's a crucified king. And what people struggle to understand about Jesus is that he's a king who takes his wisdom, who takes his power, and he makes himself absolutely naked. And he brings himself to a place of shame and weakness so that he can pray for the people who hate him. And who are disappointed that he doesn't get with the program. So that he can make his enemies into God's children. And to those who are perishing, that looks like folly. But for those who would be saved, it is salvation because that is how God makes you whole. That is how he brings you in. That is how he takes stunted, stilted, dead faith and makes it real and living and vibrant. Is to the fact that he loves you when no one else would even think it was wise to love you. He is powerful to save you when you are weak. You know, if you don't want the power of the cross, then never give your heart to another person. And never forgive. And never trust people. And never trust God. Always rely on your hard work and your degrees to get you through life. If you don't want the cross's wisdom, then never repent to a parent or a spouse because then they would know you're a sinner. Don't ever let your children dabble in Christianity, not even for a minute, because they might become a missionary and move to the other side of the planet. Or they might love somebody enough to suffer for them and to really love them. But if you do want Jesus' wisdom and Jesus' power, then humble yourself and look to the wisdom and the power of the cross. You know, if the wisdom of the cross shows us anything, then its vulnerability is powerful and can change the world. I mean, if you learn anything from a naked God praying for his enemies, it's that it's vulnerability that changes the world. And that it's wise to love and give yourself to people who are going to sin against you. Don't look to your intelligence or your beauty or your money to get you through life and to keep you safe. Our hope as Christians is not that if we're good and we're hardworking, we'll be safe. Safe isn't enough for you. Our hope is that through God's work on the cross, we will be made new. Because it's the cross that has the power to make things new. Even people like me. Even people like you. Look at verse 24 here. To those who are called both Jews and Greeks... Paul has just been railing on the Jews and the Greeks. And now he's saying, those are the people that are called? You know, God calls the very people who think that his wisdom is foolish. Who struggle to understand, who struggle to believe. He is so good that he is the one that brings them into his work. God goes and gets the sheep. Look at verse 26 through 29 there. I'm going to read this real quick. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. 
But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The beauty of the gospel is the freedom to be in, apart from your intelligence, apart from your strength, apart from all the things that we want other people to look at us and say, this is the reason you're in. That hard work, that good job, that's why you're in. The gospel looks at that and says, no. Hard work is how we're going to be okay. But it's not your hard work. It's God's hard work on the cross. The gospel eradicates your pride because it takes away the sense of control that you might have over God's affection for you. The religious person isn't in because of their prayer life or because of their missionary zeal. The educated person isn't in because they suddenly got the logic of it all. The goodness of the gospel is that God loves you and is affectionate towards you and does not cool in his affection towards you even when your prayer life is terrible because he's good. And he's so good that the only thing that he asks of you to get in is that you would ask to be let in. And he's so good that even if you don't know how to ask that or even how to desire that, he will give you that very desire. He gives you the thing he demands. That's a pretty good God, isn't it? How do we change then? This is the last point. How do we change then? If the problem is that I want to be in control and I want to be the guru on the mountain who kind of hands out knowledge or I want to be the spiritual person who's fixing the world but doesn't need God and doesn't need other people and I know that's killing me and I hate it but I can't change myself. Like, then how do I change? How do I actually become wise? Do I just sort of like will that inside of me? Do I just read the right articles or get with the right program? No. Go to the source. Look at verse 30 here. God is the source of your life in Christ, and Christ is everything. Your wisdom, what makes you right with Him, your sanctification, your redemption. He makes you wise, but He gives you more than wisdom. He makes you right with God. And he makes you holy. Jesus does everything. So if you want to change, go to him. And if you don't know how to do that, pray to him. God, I am helpless. Approach me. I can't approach you. Is he that good? He's good enough to go to the cross for you. He's good enough to pray for you when he was on the cross. Why wouldn't he be good enough to give you what you need to gain his wisdom? And to gain his righteousness. And to gain his cleanliness. And his redemption. Beloved, take the person that you are now to God in prayer. And ask him to receive you and to give you these things. Not the person that you hope to be. Or the person that you think that you should be. But the actual in this moment you. And take your guilt. And take your fear. And your doubt. And your boredom with church and your desire to fix people, and read what His Word has to say to those things. And do that over and over and over again, and you won't have found another thing to do in a very busy schedule. You will have found the best thing. You will have found the one true and living God, the one who promises to make even foolish, self-reliant people like Simon Stokes wise.
I'll end with this. One of my favorite things to do while I'm washing the dishes or kind of riding my car is to listen to a podcast called The Moth. It's a storytelling podcast if you've never heard of it. Um, some of the stories are funny. Some of them are really sad. Um, some are very poignant. And one of the best stories, I've, I've been listening to it for several years, one of the best stories I've ever heard on The Moth, I heard this last week, is told by a man named Hector Black. Very, very old man. He served in the Army in World War II. He was of Harvard's graduating class, 1949. And he told about the greatest act of forgiveness that he ever had to do. He says that he and his family were Quakers, and they moved to Atlanta during the Civil Rights Movement to help Martin Luther King. Like, they actually knew Martin Luther King during the Civil Rights Movement and hung out with him and were a part of that. And as they lived and worked in the area around Ebenezer Baptist Church, which is a very low-income area, they got to know some of the families there. They got to be very close with one family in particular, where the father wasn't present, the mother was an alcoholic, And in kind of the fullness of time, Hector and his family kind of wrapped things up in Atlanta and they sort of moved on. And one of the children from that family, one of their daughters, approached Hector and his wife and she said, can I be part of your family? Like, can I just go and live with you? Because I don't have anything here. And they said, yes. And so for all intents and purposes, this girl became their daughter. And she went to high school, she went to college, she got a degree in library sciences and eventually moved back to Atlanta to work in the inner city with children uh, who had very much the same background that she did, teaching them to read, teaching them a love of books. But Hector says that one night she came home and surprised a crack addict, and he murdered her in her house. And Hector talked about how much he hated that man at first. He had taken away his daughter. And their family had known death, but never death like this. Never at the hands of another person. And the man was eventually caught. But instead of giving himself over to his pain and his rage, Hector really worked to see this man as another person. To see him as someone who used to be a child, who was shaped by terrible things in his life. So he became addicted to drugs and eventually a murderer. And Hector didn't excuse the things that man had done because there was no excuse. But he worked to learn how to have compassion on him. He wanted to separate, if he could, this awful sin from the man who had done it. At the trial, the man was given a life without the possibility of parole. And then the family was given a chance to say something. And Hector got up and he said how much he loved his daughter... And how she was not their daughter by claim of birth, but she was their daughter by every claim of love. And he said to the man, I don't hate you, but I hate with all my soul what you did to my daughter. And then he turned and he faced the man. He said, lastly, I wish for all who have been wounded by this crime that they would know God's peace. And he looked at the man and he said, and I wish this especially for you. And he said the man's name. And Hector said that he looked at that man and tears ran down his cheeks. And Hector said that I never saw that look in someone else's eyes. That it was like a soul in hell. And the man wept and he said, I am so sorry for the pain that I've caused you and your family. I am so sorry for what I've done. And Hector knew that in that moment, this man who was from the street, who had no worldly possessions, whose life was in effect over was trying to give him the only thing that he had. 
which was to ask him for forgiveness. And Hector said that eventually he felt like he came to understand that man. And that in time, he even forgave him. And he started to write letters to his daughter's murderer. And he and his wife went to go visit the man. And they prayed with the man. And they hugged him. And they even gave him Christmas presents. Christmas presents to your daughter's murderer. And Hector said that he realized that when you start to forgive someone, you can start to have compassion on them. You start to care about them. And he realized that when you hate, it's like you're taking poison into yourself and expecting the other person to die. And that it was through forgiveness that both of those men could start to live again. With loss, yes, terrible loss. Hector and his family lost a daughter. Their daughter lost her life. This man, in many ways, lost his own life. But there was some hope some chance for redemption. And I don't wish this sort of thing on anyone, but I tell this story because I hear a story like that, and I have to ask, is it wise to give Christmas gifts to the murderer of your daughter? It depends on whose wisdom it is. Only God's wisdom looks honestly at the world and at the terrible things of the world and at his enemies and says, you are forgiven. You are free. And he is our wisdom and our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption. And that comes not because we summon it up inside of ourselves, but because God has placed himself on a cross, surrounded by his enemies, betrayed by his friends, and shed his blood so that he could look at you and at me and say, you are as right with me as my son is. There is no condemnation for you. Any anger... Any frustration, any wrath that I might have has been poured out on Jesus, and you are free. And if that is what is meant for God to be wise and powerful towards us, then let us turn to him and learn that wisdom as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us, that you call us to yourself through your Son. Lord, that we can approach you through his wisdom through his power, through his shed blood. Lord, on our own we have nothing, but in him we have everything. So God, I pray that we would bring ourselves to you. Lord, I pray that you would come to us. Lord, I would pray that you would give us everything we need to know the one true and living God and to free us to go into the world from the Good Shepherd today and to serve and to love Durham and our jobs and our families out of the wisdom and the power of the cross of the Son of God. In your son's name we pray. Amen.